So if you want to turn there in your your own Bible or your device, or there are Bibles in some of the pew, some of the chairs in front of you, and if you're using one of those, it's on page 966, Acts chapter one. We're beginning a, a new sermon series, and uh, so we'll be reading from Acts chapter one, verses one to eleven. Listen to the word of God. I wrote in the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you've heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. This is the word of God. Well, good morning, Cornerstone. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Jesus is as much risen and ruling and reigning today as he was last Sunday. We gather on the first day of the week, every week, uh, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. My name's Kevin. Uh, it's my privilege to welcome you here. Uh, whether church is uh, a thing that you've been doing for decades every week or, um, or maybe it's something new for you, uh, we're just thrilled that you have gathered together today. Um, every Sunday what we do is we turn our hearts towards uh, a passage of the scripture and uh, which we believe is God's word written to us and um, we, we turn our hearts and our minds towards that and open ourselves and say, Lord, what would you uh, have for us? What would you want to say to us in this uh, in this passage of the scripture? And so we are uh, beginning what will be a uh, fairly lengthy uh, series. We're going to be going through the book of Acts. Sometimes it's called the Acts of the Apostles. Um, uh, and that might be a bit of a misnomer, as we'll as we'll see even today. But uh, this book of the Bible has uh, 28 chapters. And uh, and we're going to I think we planned out to the end of the summer, and we got through like eight or nine of those chapters. And so just to give you a sense of where we're going, um, the book of Acts is a continuation of another book. It's um, written by the same author. The the author is Dr. Luke. Luke, uh, we know from Colossians 4, is a medical doctor um, who is a really close friend of the Apostle Paul. 
He remained loyal to Paul uh, throughout uh, Paul's ministry, even though Paul was um, often beaten and imprisoned and ultimately uh, killed for his belief in the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Luke remained uh, loyal to Paul and remained uh, a faithful companion of him on many of his trips. I think often uh, Luke was probably... Um, Comparable to like the the uh, the cut guy in the corner of a, a boxer, you know. Have you ever seen ever watched boxing? And you know, the guy gets sent out in the middle of the ring, and he gets his face pummeled up. And he, after the end of the round, he comes and sits on the stool. And there's all kinds of people attending to the face of this boxer, boxer closing up cuts and and saying, uh, and the coach is in his ear. But uh, Luke's the doctor stitching Paul up and then saying, "Go back out and preach." Go take it on the chin again, and you're going to get beaten again, or stoned again, or shipwrecked again, but I'll be here, and we're in this together. Luke was a um, a very close friend of Paul. He accompanied him on many of the journeys, and as you read towards the end of this uh, book of Acts, um, you don't read, Paul went, he says, we went. So he was he was an eyewitness to much of what he writes here in uh, in this uh, account, he is an educated man. Uh, Greek scholars will say that the Gospel of Luke and uh, here the book of Acts are written in uh, fairly sophisticated Greek language. It's, it's clear that he's ed- well educated and that he wrote really very, very, very carefully. Um, he wanted to carefully research the history in the beginning of the Christian church and um, and so that's that's one of the main reasons why he wrote is is for this historical purpose is that um, and and actually let's turn there to the Gospel of Luke and uh, and how the Gospel of Luke opens up. It opens up in a very similar way to um, the Book of Acts. So the Gospel of Luke says this in in Luke chapter one verse one it says many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, remember that name from Acts 1 that Andrew just read, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you've been instructed. So Luke's saying, and, and it's, it's really clear by the, the similar openings of each of these books, that this is a continuation, this is a two-volume set, as to why he's written. He, he wanted to carefully investigate the events that have taken place. He wanted to write an orderly sequence. He, he writes this, he addresses this to most honorable or most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus, it means friend or loved by God. Um, and, and, and so, um, so Luke is is saying, I want you to have certainty. I want you to know um, the historical events that have taken place, and I want you to have certainty about um, the fact that I have carefully researched this. Theophilus is um, likely um, a, a wealthy official. Um, some would say maybe he's um, he, he's not a real person. He's kind of a stand-in for. Um, uh, for anyone, he's saying to any who are friends of God, loved by God, I want you to know this. Um, but he's referring to him as most honorable Theophilus, likely uh, maybe even the benefactor, maybe the, the funder of his research, 
Luke has obviously, through his gospel and through uh, the book of Acts, he has traveled and gone and interviewed many, many of the eyewitnesses to the accounts of which he writes. And so many believe that Theophilus was one of the uh, the benefactors, the funders of uh, Luke's study. So Luke has this um, this historical purpose for writing. And so we have a historical purpose for um, studying what he's written. And uh, this here is the history, the beginnings, the founding of the Christian church. And so just like we teach our kids Canadian history in school, so that we don't, because it's our history, it's not someone else's history, it's our history. And we, we want to understand how our nation was founded, on what principles it was founded, how, how it came to be, so that we can understand our present situation. And we can chart our course for the future. It's our history. So, so here with the book of Acts is the history, the foundations, the beginnings of the Christian church. This isn't just, um, someone else's history. This is our history. This is the history of, as to how the church began, why the church exists, and what the church should be all about. And so uh, we're going to read this, not, uh, you know, we're going to study this, not as some distantly removed um, historians. We're reading this as our history. This is our story, and we're, we're actually part of, you know, the, the continuation of this history. And, and we're going to read it with the eyes of, we're going to study it with the eyes of faith. Um, A.W. Tozer says what God, um, anything that God has ever done, he can do now. Anything that God has ever done anywhere, he can do here. And anything that God has ever done for anyone, he can do for you. So anything God has ever done, he can do now. Anything he's done anywhere, he can do here. Anything he's done for anyone, he can do for you. And so we want to read it with the eyes of faith as we hear of what God has done and how he has acted in history. We want to say, Lord, would you do similar kinds of things here among us? And would you do them in our day, in our time, in this place? And so we want to read it with the eyes of um, and with a heart full of faith and of prayer, saying, Lord, would you, these remarkable things that you have done in the past, would you continue to do them? And uh, part of connected to this, one of the things we'd love to do in the um, throughout this series, periodically, not, maybe not necessarily every single week, but we want to share some of the stories from the history of the Christian church that aren't recorded in Scripture, but throughout history, and say, um, many of the, the stories of revival, of, of how God has moved throughout history, we want to share some of those stories in kind of four or five minute segments. And uh, so if you would love to be involved in that, if you um, love to maybe share a story and research a story and share a story, um, I'd love to talk to you about that. And we'd love to have a number of us involved in sharing of those kinds uh, of stories throughout this book of Acts as we um, study it. Study the, our history, but not just um, not just as cold scholars, but with the with a heart of faith and of prayer and of longing and of hunger, and to say, Lord, what you have done in the past, we want to see you. Cult- we're, we want to cultivate a heart that's hungry for you to do it again. Does that make sense? We want to see you do it again. We want we want to see you acting in history now and here. Um, Many of the scholar, many scholars will also say Luke has a, a bit of a political purpose in writing uh, what he's done. He is sure to include the fact that uh, a number of Roman officials have uh, become followers of Jesus, and um, and he wants to communicate to the Roman Empire that 
uh, Christianity is actually a legal religion in their eyes, that um, it's really a continuation of Judaism. And so many of the sermons and many of the um, uh, of the talks that are included in, in Acts uh, really show how the story of the Christian church is really a continuation of the Old Testament um, of the Jewish religion. That, that they're inseparable, and it's actually just a fulfillment and continuation of that. And so wanting to uh, communicate to the surrounding culture that, um, that, that the followers of Jesus, um, in effect, are, are not out to overthrow the empire, um, but uh, are, are meant actually for the good of the community. There's an evangelistic purpose to why to what to why Luke writes uh, the, the book of Acts. He has 20 sermons included uh, in in this book. There's um, comprising almost half of the of the narrative are are this these proclamations, the central role that proclamation of the gospel has in the spread of Christianity. And so Luke wants to win his readers to Jesus. He's, he doesn't just want you to say, "Oh, that's interesting his history. That isn't that amazing? Isn't that interesting?" He he wants to win your hearts towards Jesus. He doesn't, he wants to convince you of the truth of what, of who Jesus is and all that he's accomplished. And he wants you to give your heart to him and enter into a life of faith in him and become, a, for you to be a follower of him. He, 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 he means to be persuasive in the ways he writes. The, the key to the passage that we're studying today, these first 11 verses of uh, Acts chapter 1, is really the key to the entire book of Acts. It really forms the, um, the outline for the whole book. And that is verse 8, where Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's the key for this passage, and really it forms, it's a foreshadowing of the outline of the entire book of uh, Acts. And, uh, and, I'll, and I'll explain how that is in a moment. But um, the, the, the next chapter, chapter 2, really is all about the Holy Spirit coming on the followers of Jesus. And then the next bunch of chapters are about them being witnesses in Jerusalem. And then the next bunch of chapters are about them being witnesses in Judea and Samaria. And then the last half of the book or so is about them being witnesses of, to Jesus in the ends of the earth, throughout Asia Minor and all the way to Rome. So that's the outline of the book of Acts, really summarized there in verse 8. And so uh, verse uh, 8 really, though, is the key to our passage here this morning as well that I'm going to try to unpack for us. Um, because Jesus says, here's what is most important. Here's what's most important for you. I've risen from the dead. I'm about to ascend back to heaven. Here's what I want you to know. I want you to be my witnesses. I want you to be witnesses of, of me. I want you to witness to this world, to be an eyewitness to the world about who I am and what faith in me is all about and what following me is like. And so I want to uh, unpack for us from this passage a number of characteristics, components of that are essential to being a witness of Jesus, to being a witness to who Jesus is and what he's done. And the first is that a witness must be active in both word and deed. Word and deed. He writes in uh, verse 1, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, 
about all that Jesus began to do and teach. In other words, I'm writing this second narrative to you, Theophilus, about all that Jesus continues to do and teach. Do and teach. I'm writing this book about all that Jesus is now going to continue to do through his church by the power of the Holy Spirit and what he's going to do, what his actions are, what his deeds are, and what he's going to teach, his, his, uh, his words, his truth. That's really um, important for us as individual followers of Jesus and corporately together as a church. If we're going to be a witness in this world, our words and our deeds need to line up. And we must be people of both words and actions, words and deeds. We need both. And that's we see that in the life of Jesus. We see the life of Jesus as a life full of merciful deeds and compassionate actions and miraculous works. Powerful, compassionate. And we would see him going throughout all the towns and saying, for this reason I've come. I've come to preach. Let's go and preach the gospel in other nations. This is the reason I've come. People are saying, wow, he teaches with authority. His preaching is authoritative and powerful. Jesus, throughout his ministry, his deeds illustrate his words. His, his deeds really illustrate what his words are all about. And his words explain his deeds. Jesus teaches in Matthew 5.16, he says, Let your light shine before everyone so that they would see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. You see the same uh, commitment to both words and deeds throughout the church in the book of Acts. As they care for physical needs of people, as, as they walk selflessly in acts of generosity and faithfulness to Jesus. You see a church committed throughout the, the accounts of the, the early church as well, a, a church committed to social justice, to racial integration, to caring for the sick and for the poor. And we see a church relentlessly preaching and teaching, proclaiming to the world that Jesus is the Christ, the Lord, the Messiah, the King, that he's the Savior. You see a church committed to both words and deeds. And so as a church, we want to be a church that's committed to both words and deeds. That's why we have ministries like Meals Plus, that where some of us go in pairs and visit um, people in their homes who are, who are often sick or, and sometimes bound to their homes and, 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 and form, deliver meals, give acts of mercy, delivering meals and food, but also the plus, the friendship, the teaching, the invitation to who Jesus is. That's why we're launching this migrant agricultural worker clinic to to show to help pro- provide access to healthcare in Jesus name to those in our community. That's why we feed the hungry in Burundi. That's why we're educating them. That's why we're um reaching out to some of the poorest people in the in the world and 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 caring for their medical needs and their educational needs and their day-to-day needs, their housing. And connected to all of those things, we're preaching and teaching and sharing good news. We need to be a people, to be witnesses to Jesus who are committed to both doing what Jesus does and what he teaches. 
Now we don't always do all of those things at the exact same time. But we must be a church that's committed to both word and deed. We must be people who are committed to both word and deed. Second thing I want us to see, and um, one of the commentators I read really pulls this out. His name is Ajit Fernando. He's from Sri Lanka. And again, we stand with many of our uh, brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka as they're mourning the, this week uh, after these horrific bombings on Easter Sunday in many churches. Um, but Ajith Fernando, this uh, this really great um, Sri Lankan uh, scholar and uh, and minister, um, who I've respected over the years, many of what much of what he's written, he he pulls out and says this passage here is teaching that. Uh, to be a witness for Jesus means that we must be committed to both objective truth and to subjective experience. To objective truth and subjective experience. He says he's pulling this out of primarily from the fact that um, objective truth, that Jesus shows himself to be risen from the dead with, quote, many convincing proofs. And then subjectively experience, he says, wait here in Jerusalem. You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. So Christianity is based, is based on objective truth, historical truth claims, historical factual claims that Jesus was dead. His heart had stopped beating for three days and then it started beating again. Christianity is based on objectively true true, claims to truth. Who God is. What God is like. The identity of Jesus. The life and work of Jesus. Doctrinal truths about the way the world was created. and, And what's gone wrong with the world. And how the world can be restored. These are These are things that we believe are objectively true. It means that they're true whether... You believe that they're true or not, that we, we think that they are true, that this is rea- really real, this is true reality, that these are things that have happened, that the God of the universe who created all things, against whom we have rebelled, has entered into history through Jesus, who is both God and man, that Jesus lived the life that we should have lived, he died in our place to forgive our sins. He's risen again. He's ascended. He's going to return. And that God is going to restore all things. He's going to renew his creation when Jesus returns physically to the earth. These are objectively true things that we believe. And Christians, to as followers of Jesus, as we grow in maturity, we, we not only assent to these truths, the truths of who God is and the Trinity and and, and, and learn, grow in knowledge and grow in our understanding of the scriptures and grow in our knowledge and understanding of theology. We, we want to have a sound mind. Jesus presented himself alive with many convincing proofs. These are, that might stand out to you, stand, and you're like, resurrection? Like dead, now alive by proof? How, how is that? What's, what's, what's proof? How can you prove that? Well, that's a great question. As I mentioned last Sunday, um, I encourage you to read the story of Simon Greenleaf, who was a, 
a professor of Harvard Law School who literally wrote the preeminent textbook on historical evidence and what evidence is, is, um, uh, can stand up in a court of law who openly mocked the resurrection and when challenged to investigate it, in, does an investigation into the quote-unquote proofs of the resurrection and ter- becomes a Christian, is convinced by the evidence. There's... Um, we know that these are eyewitnesses who said that they saw Jesus, that they saw him in groups, and they touched him, and they ate meals with him, and they changed their belief system, and they gave their lives for believing in it. All of them. Because they, were, they say that they saw him. You're like, oh, maybe it was a hallucination. Hallucinations don't happen in groups. And things that you see hallucinate don't eat the fish. And now it's gone. There's, and, and it, so if, if, if you have doubts about the historical nature of the resurrection, I'd, I'd encourage you to do some research. And there's, there's, I can point you in many good directions as for resources to consider. But the, but all of this to say is that a witness of Jesus is, is a witness to some objectively true things. Things that are, we believe to be really real, truly true. And a witness of Jesus must ha- not just know some stuff, have some knowledge, have a sound heart, must have a subjective, personal experience with this God whom we believe to be objectively true. That a witness to Jesus is not just a, um, a big head, but also has a warm heart. A witness to Jesus is growing not just in knowledge, but also in love, in experience. He says, you'll be baptized, immersed with the Holy Spirit. You'll have a personal experience with God. You'll experience the fullness of God. Now there's a debate, just to be clear, there's, there is a debate in the, in the family and the Christian community about what is this baptism of the Holy Spirit? Is that something that, um, happens when you become a Christian or is it something that, um, is a later experience that you're, uh, meant to experience later after, you know, a new level of maturity in Jesus? And I, for me, the answer is yes. It's, it's kind of, it's both. And I, that the, the New Testament, Paul teaches, be filled and keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. That there are higher levels of spiritual experience. And yet the New Testament's also clear that when you've come to faith in Jesus and you've trusted in Him and said yes to Him, that He gives the Holy Spirit to take up residence in you to, and, and to begin to fill you. And yet, as we grow in maturity and as we grow in commitment and as we grow in devotion to Jesus and we grow in knowledge, we, we seek more and more of the Holy Spirit's um, impact in our lives. And we say, Lord, would you fill me again today? Would you fill me today? Would I have new power and new strength? And would you have more of me? Would I, would I be able to relinquish more control to you, Holy Spirit? Would you fill me again today? I want to, I don't want to just know these truths. I want to experience them from the inside out. I, I don't want to, um, just 
have outside, outside in transformation where I'm just trying really, really hard to be really, really good. I want to have an inside out that you're inside me and you're changing my heart and changing what I love and changing what I desire. And, and those things are going to work out and change behavior. From, I want inside out transformation. I want to experience the truth. I don't just want to know the truth. There's little, very little New Testament teaching that's really explicit on how to be filled, but Jesus is clear that in order to be a witness, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, wait, don't start witnessing now. Wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. And Luke, um, Luke is uh, the, um, the, the author is, is one of the, um, in his gospel, makes it so clear that Jesus lived his life by the power of the Holy Spirit. As one um, one pastor I heard uh, once say, um, Jesus didn't cheat. Sometimes we think, you know, well, of course Jesus lived a sinful life. He was God. Of course he could do these powerful things. Of course he was wise. Of course he could um, teach with authority. He was God. But Jesus didn't cheat. Jesus lived his life according to his human nature, that he was God and man. Even though he was fully God, he didn't avail himself of all of the resources of being God all of the time. That Jesus resisted temptation. Jesus um, uh, went where he went. Jesus did what he did. Jesus spoke what he spoke. Why? Because he was led by the Holy Spirit. He lived according to his human nature. And so if you read through the Gospel of Luke, um, you'll see over and over and over again that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, said this. Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, resisted temptation. Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, went out into the wilderness. By the Holy Spirit, he taught over and over and over again throughout the Gospel of Luke. Luke is teaching us that if you want a picture of what a Spirit-filled life looks like, look to Jesus. Jesus is the perfect example of what it looks like to live a life baptized by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, relying on the Holy Spirit, not resisting, quenching, or grieving the Holy Spirit, but being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's the kind of life we need to live as a witness to Jesus. We don't want to resist the Holy Spirit. We don't want to quench the Holy Spirit. We don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. We want to say, Lord, we need the Holy Spirit. We want to experience you deep in our hearts. We want to know your love from the inside out. We want to know your grace from the inside out. We want to experience your power from the inside out by your Holy Spirit. So fill me today, Lord, to follow you. That's what we, uh, a witness of Jesus needs to um, be committed to both the objective truths and the subjective experience. Now, I want to clarify that the Holy Spirit, sometimes um, I hear talk about the Holy Spirit, and he kind of sounds like the, the force from Star Wars, right? That he's some ethereal force or some amorphous gas that somehow maybe comes in through the ventilation system in a room and is just kind of floating out there. The, the, the Holy Spirit is a person. The, the scriptures are clear. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's personal he's not some it we don't conjure up an elusive it we treasure the transforming power of an indwelling him and that's a big difference that the holy spirit is not an it the holy spirit is a he a person 
He's not a mystical gas, like I said, floating around. R.A. Torrey says this, it'll be on the screen. If we think of the Holy Spirit, as many do, as merely a power or influence, our constant thought will be, how can I get more of the Holy Spirit? But if we think of him in the biblical way as a divine person, our thought will rather be, how can the Holy Spirit have more of me? The conception of the Holy Spirit as a divine influence or power that we're somehow to get a hold of and use leads to self-exaltation and self-sufficiency. One who so thinks of the Holy Spirit and who at the same time imagines that he has received the Holy Spirit will almost inevitably be full of spiritual pride and strut about as if he belonged to some superior order of Christians. The Holy Spirit's not, and sometimes the, even the language of Scripture can Get us to think. And Jesus says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And we start to think of, well, the Holy Spirit is just this power or this presence. It's, it's a person that we can know and relate to and experience and worship and enjoy and talk to. A person that we can resist and greet. The Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. And it makes a big difference. So just like we need to be people of word and deed, and realistically, churches generally tend to focus on being a person of word or a person of deed, a person of objective truth or a person of subjective experience. I don't want to start naming denominations here, but you can... If you're familiar enough, you, you kind of know that, well, you know, we're a Bible church or we're a Holy Spirit church or we're a, they're dead orthodoxy or they're just only spiritual experience. We need to be, embrace the, the both and. We need to be people of word and deed, people of objective truth and subjective experience, enlightened minds and warm hearts. Amen. We need to we need to embrace the and and not cast stones at those who may go. We want to find the center ground here, but it's not just a little bit of each. It's commitment to both the fullness of each side of this continuum. Can you hear me on that? Third, we need to be people to be witnesses of Jesus. We need to be committed to both local and global witness. Jesus says you're going to be witness, my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. So Jerusalem is right ground zero, right where they are. Judea, Samaria, Niagara region, and Ontario to the ends of the earth. It's concentric circles. He's saying, I actually want my message to spread to the ends of the earth. But where does it start? It starts where you are. And you go out from there. It's like dropping the pebble in the pond and the ripple in the Ripples that go out from there. It's the concentric circles around wherever you are. It starts where you are. This reminds us that the message of Jesus is not a national religion. This isn't a tribal message, a tribal religion. This is an international message that transcends cultures. He says, I want you to cross cultural barriers. I want you to cross geographical barriers. The disciples miss this, right? If you look in Acts 1, Jesus, uh, verse 3, what does he do? He begins uh, over a period of 40 days, and he's speaking about what? He's speaking about the kingdom of God. But the disciples say, verse, ask in verse 6, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? 
Right? Jesus is talking about God's kingdom, and the disciples are like, hey, is it our turn now? Is it Israel's turn? Is it our nation's turn? Are we going to be lifted up? Jesus is about the kingdom of God, and the disciples were still missing out, and they were like thinking nationalistically and politically and racially. Jesus is saying, no, this is for all nations. This is for all kinds of people. This is actually the fulfillment to the, to the promise I made to Abraham way back in Genesis where I said to Abraham, through you and through your offspring, all the families of the world will be blessed. That I'm actually going to extend this out beyond Israel and to every nation, to every race, every tribe, every tongue, every people group. This is for everyone. Anyone can get in on this. And so as a church, to be a witness to Jesus, we need to reject wholeheartedly ethnocentrism, where we're focused on our own ethnic group, whatever that happens to be. We need to reject with all power that we have to, to any kind of racial superiority. We must reject racial superiority, cultural differences. We must relinquish any prejudice. We need to repent of any lack of concern we have for unreached peoples. Any arrogance that we may have towards other cultures. Because we believe though, that the message of Jesus does indeed challenge the pluralism, the subjective truth claims of our culture, because there is only one way to the Father. And so to be witnesses of Jesus, we must be committed to reaching this world, beginning with your own neighborhood and your own family in Niagara on the Lake and St. Catharines and Niagara Falls and Ontario and Canada and Burundi and Thailand and nations we may not yet have heard of. So these three characteristics, components of being a witness to Jesus, word and deed, truth and experience, local and global, we need both. It's a both and. But the fourth is an only. We need to, we need to be, must be focused only on Jesus. No other focus. The focus and the message, Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses. You're witnesses to me. You're not a witness to how great you are or how great your church is or how great the music is or how mediocre the preaching is. The, the, the commitment is to the person of Jesus. We're committed. Our message is Jesus and Jesus only. He says, don't get caught up in conjecture. Is it now the time that the Jesus is returning? He says, don't, don't give in. Don't, don't make the charts. Don't make those charts where you're trying to say, well, Revelation, this is talking about Russia and this is Saudi Arabia and here we, don't make the charts. Don't try to figure out when I'm coming back, but I am coming back. But don't try to figure it out. That's not your business. This is your business. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We actually believe it's, it's sinful for a church to sit down with a whiteboard and say, hmm, what's our mission? What should we be all about? Jesus gives it to us. He says, be my witnesses. Sometimes we think, oh man, I'd love to be with Jesus in those 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension where he's teaching his disciples. What's he teaching them? We know because we read it. It's called the Great Commission. You know how we have like five versions of the Great Commission. You know why? Because that's all he talked about over and over again in different ways. He talked about the Great Commission. So in Matthew 28, he says, go into all nations, 
and make disciples, baptizing them in, them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I've commanded you to do. And I'm with you always to the end of the age. In Mark, he says, go to all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. In Luke 24, he says that repentance, forgiveness of sins, would be, must be preached to all nations. John, chapter 20, he says, peace to you. As the Father sent me, so I send you. And he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Acts, chapter 1, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's what he taught. He said, as a church, you need to be about one thing, being my witnesses. Don't witness to how great you are. Don't witness to how great your music is. Don't witness to how great your community is. Witness to who I am, what I've accomplished in my life and death and resurrection. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be enamored with me and commend me to your neighbors and your friends. A church that lives for itself will die by itself. As the Neil Bruner says, a church exists by mission as fire exists by burning. A church exists by mission as fire exists by burning. So we must be a, a people just enamored with Jesus, focused on Jesus. Every single verse, verses 1 to 11, every single verse refers to Jesus. That's our message. Our message is Jesus. We're focused only on him. How do we do it? Everyday Christians, seeing themselves as missionaries planted by God, wherever they live, work, and play. That, that beats any marketing ploy or gimmick or strategy that we would have as to, hey, how can we get people in this room for one hour a week so that whoever's standing here can tell them about Jesus? No, how about all of us, everyday Christians, filled with God's Spirit, going out 24-7, wherever we live, work, and play, with Jesus in our hearts, with Jesus in our minds, with Jesus on our lips, with the Holy Spirit in our hearts, testifying and witnessing about who, how great Jesus is and all that he's accomplished. Make sense? That beats any gimmick, any marketing ploy. That's the strategy. That's the, that's the mission that God's given us. That's what the book of Acts is all about. There's only one way to the Father. It's Jesus. There's only one source of power. It's the Holy Spirit. There's only one message, Jesus. So let's pray. So Father in heaven, would you give us these commitments to be a church of word and deed, of truth and experience, of committed to local and global. We ask that you would make us increasingly a multicultural, multiracial church. And Lord, give us one undying passion and focus and that is the person of your son the lord jesus we know that's the the goal of the holy spirit is that we would be just enamored with jesus and so father we say fill us with your spirit so that we would be your witnesses in our neighborhood in niagara on the lake in niagara falls and catherine's the region of niagara the province of ontario and to every nation that you love in jesus great name Amen. There's coffee. Hope you get some. Connect with someone. If you have kids over there, get them. Come back. We're going to worship.